Grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1, Luke 1, and uh, that's page 903 of your pew Bibles. We're continuing our study uh, of the biography of, of John the Baptist, right? So in the mornings, we're looking at his story, the, his, his nativity story. In the evening, we're looking more at his, his ministry. Um, but how often is John the Baptist overlooked in the Christmas story? To a certain extent, there's a good reason for that. And by the way, as you turn, let me just say, this is one of my favorite Sundays of the year because of all the red I see. I'm just going to leave it there, but you need to remember next week is actually Christmas. So I expect all y'all to come back dressed up in red. Um, Don't worry about green. We're not Michigan State fans here. So uh, Luke chapter 1, if you'll stand with me out of reverence of God's Word, we'll read verses 39 to 43, 45 rather. Luke the evangelist writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 39, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask, as always, that you would open our hearts and our minds, our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we will go in obedience to Christ. May we see the beauty that is Christmas. We are here today because we worship the child who came one of us and died in our place and for our sins. Would you be so kind as to move us towards faith today? May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name your son, we pray. Amen. May we be seated. I will be honest with you that Christmas is one of my least favorite holidays. I know that is heresy in modern America. But if I had to rank all the holidays uh, that we celebrate, Christmas would be nowhere near the top. Easter and Thanksgiving would be my two favorites. Uh, But but Christmas, I'm I'm a bit of a Grinch, which is why I own now three Grinch ties. And it isn't just because it's the greatest Christmas story, the second greatest, I know Jesus. But but other than Jesus, the greatest Christmas story ever, Dr. Seuss just nailed it. Uh, But I am a bit of a Grinch when it comes to it. I, I don't really like to wrap presents. Uh, in fact, there is a present under our tree right now for one of the kids that when I went to wrap it, we ran out of wrapping paper. And instead of going and starting over as you moms would do, I, I just made sure the top and the sides were covered. And I took a piece of paper, taped a note on top of it, said, under no circumstances are you to flip this present over, right? That was my wrapping job right there. Um, you know, I, I used quite a bit of tape because I just, well... You know, uh, duct tape works better than masking tape. Anyway, so um, uh, I, I, I don't like the presents. I don't like decorating trees. I don't like hanging lights and taking lights down. You people who will go outside, climb a ladder, and decorate the outside of your house with lights, you're, there's something wrong with you. For one, my, my migraines can't ha- happen. There, there's a house near my parents that the lights are flashing really bad. And that's going to trigger, you know, an epileptic stroke or something like that. And and then I, I I don't like eggnog. I don't I don't like a lot of things about Christmas. I, but the main thing I don't like is the consumerism of it. That we spend so much time worried about 
who we left off of our list than, than anything else. Um, I've, I've tried year after year to implement a rule in a, particularly my, my wife's family that if you're 18 or above, you get squat from, from us, okay? I'm done with you, right? If you really want it, go get it yourself, you lazy bum, right? I mean, come on. I just, I'm just not a big Christmas guy. But what it is that we get in this passage is really what is at the core of Christmas. What is really the meaning of Christmas? If you, if you, if you can strip away all of that stuff, what, what is it that you're really left with? Well, what is it that, 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 that really makes Christmas worthy of celebration? Why is it that we have all the other things, as important as some of them might be? Why do we have them? The answer is found right here in this text. Now, we need a little bit of, of, of background here. And we need to remember, as we saw last week, Luke loves his pairs. Right here, we see the pairs of two first-time mothers and two cousins coming together, colliding. And the context is, remember that we're doing the biography of, of John, so, so we, we did a little bit of skipping. What happened between what we saw last week with the conception of John uh, and what we see this week is that the same angel that visited Zechariah in the temple appears to Mary up in Galilee and announces that she is pregnant. And Mary knows that can't be possible. Much as it is impossible for Elizabeth to conceive, so it is impossible for Mary to conceive, essentially for the same reason. Their wombs are closed. Nevertheless, the angel says, here, we can confirm for you that uh, you are pregnant because the same thing has happened to Elizabeth. And that is where we pick up here. And here we see the reunion of these two women. In verse 39, the, 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 uh, Mary leaves with haste, the text says, leaves Galilee for the town where Elizabeth and Zechariah live. And so if you follow Luke in, in, in the sequence, the story goes back and forth, right? We're, we're, we're in Israel, or we're in, we're in Jerusalem, then we're in Judah, and then we're in, we're in uh, Galilee, and then, and then we're back into Judah, back and forth. But here we are, the scene is cutting back to the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now this trip that Mary takes would have been about 50 to 70 miles uh, that would have been about three to four days traveling. And the fact that Mary goes is quite striking because at this time, it would have been unsafe and unusual for women to travel, particularly by themselves. It is possible she had people to go with her and likely had some sort of animal or some sort of traveling companion to, to help her. Nevertheless, she goes on this journey to find Elizabeth. To, to, if Elizabeth is born, remember, she's waited five months to come out uh, for, from hiding. That if Elizabeth is pregnant, that can give her some form of confirmation. In fact, that's really what it is that we see going on here. Mary goes to see Elizabeth for two reasons. The first is confirmation. Confirmation. Gabriel told Mary that Elizabeth was pregnant. And if she were to go visit Elizabeth, the signs of the pregnancy would be there. And so, in short, Elizabeth can assure Mary she is not crazy. And I think this is worth noting here. I try to do it each Christmas that the ancients weren't quick to believe in miracles. In fact, you'll notice in the narrative, both Zechariah and Mary, when they receive the news of this miraculous conception, their first response is, that ain't possible, yo. Zechariah says, my wife can't get pregnant. Mary says, I can't get pregnant. The ancients weren't just gun ho on believing every little miracle. 
But when they when a miracle was was evidenced, they were quick to believe that it was God who was involved in the miracle. And so so going to see Elizabeth would confirm in her own heart that God is indeed working in her life. But not only does Mary go for confirmation, she goes for comforts. Now, this may come to a surprise to, uh, to some people in our culture, but no matter how hard I try, I am no expert on what it's like to be pregnant. But I suspect the young Mary would find comforts in Elizabeth's wisdom and shared experience. Life was hard, particularly for unmarried pregnant women. We can look at Matthew chapter 1, and there the text says that her husband Joseph, now they weren't married in the sense they've had the wedding and everything, but they were betrothed is the word we use in English. don't really have a great English word for it. Basically, they are married without everything involving married, right? They didn't live together. They certainly didn't sleep together. They didn't, she didn't take his last name, anything like that. But they were, in all, all sense, they were considered married. Uh, engaged is not a strong enough word in, in English. For nevertheless, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he knew that because she's pregnant, well, she's, she, she, she's run around on him. Therefore, divorce is, is the proper response. And you remember the angel then has to go to Joseph and say, don't, don't, don't do that sort of thing. Life for an unmarried pregnant woman was difficult. And so here she is at the beginning of her conception. She says, I know exactly who it is I need to talk to. I need to run to Elizabeth, who is not only the daughter and the wife of a priest, she herself is a godly woman. And she can understand the situation I'm in. And I can find comfort in her home, a home that she may not have found comfort elsewhere. Now, in verse 41 is the most memorable scene of this entire passage. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, here the women greet each other. This greeting would probably would have been a, a longer sort of process than we greet each other. The way we greet each other is usually, hey, hey, how are you? Fine, fine. How are you? Good. How's the wife and kids? Good. How's your wife and kids? Good. Everything good at home? Yeah. Everything good at home? Yeah. Then the awkward silence, right? That's the way we greet. Theirs would have been more formal and would have been more uh, elongated. Nevertheless, um, we see that John, who is about five to six months old at this time in the womb, uh, leaps in Elizabeth's belly. Now, there's a few things we need to know here. First of all, this is the language of quickening. Quickening in the womb, we know now, happens between, uh, starts between 16 to 24 weeks. And every mother has had that moment of a baby kicking in the belly, right? And you particularly remember the first time. And it seems to be the rule is that you start telling everybody he or she's already kicking, but when you try to show he or she is already kicking, he or she doesn't want to kick, right? Doesn't it just take 40 times when they kick before you can actually prove they're doing that? That seems to be it, right? I know with, with, with our kids, you know, my wife's always, oh, they're already kicking. I feel the kick. Here, put your hand here. They're kicking. Stop kicking, right? That seems to be, be the pattern. Um, perhaps at least that's the way I'm reading the likely what Elizabeth, at least in a simple sense, what Elizabeth is, is experiencing here. And of course, every mother knows what it's like when their child becomes active. This isn't just a, 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 a single roundhouse to the ribs. This, this is something much more exuberant, much more active for her. Now, what is significant is not the what, it's the when. 
It's not the what, it's the when. And every mother takes note of this. Every mother here who's, who's carried a baby the term can, can, can say that the baby gets more active around certain events, certain times, and around certain people. Maybe at 5 o'clock every day, daddy comes home. And, and the baby hears you say, well, welcome home, honey, or whatever it is that, that, that you do. And he says, how are my girls or something? I don't know, whatever it is he does. And at that point, through that pattern, the baby may start to kick at the sound of the father's voice. Something like that, right? It is, what is significant in that moment, particularly for the mother, is not that the baby is quickening, but when the baby is quickening. So, too, you have the same phenomena here. It is not significant that, the, that John is, is kicking and leaping and jumping for joy, but that it is in the context of the arrival, not of Mary, but of Christ. Again, the significance is not the what, it is the when. John leaps when Jesus arrives. This, we could say, is the first prophecy of John, right here in the womb. The word that... that Luke uses here is used only three times in the New Testament, all of them by Luke. Perhaps the most significant, and two of them are in this chapter, but the most significant, I think, is in chapter 6, where Jesus says, Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. You see, the word leap here isn't merely to, to clap your hands. Or rather, it is to, to skip. In fact, the, the Hebrew version of this, according to the Greek Septuagint, is the word skip. It is to celebrate. It is to, to be exuberant in your joy. And that's the word Luke uses to describe John. Upon the arrival of Jesus, he gets excited. He's no longer John the Southern Baptist. It might be John the Southern Pentecostal. It might be happening there, right? He becomes quite excited. Can I make just two quick observations here? The first is I do think pro-lifers are right to highlight this passage as biblical evidence that the unborn is life and life is worthy of protection. I don't want to spend forever on this, but I do think that is an inference from this text. I don't think it's the main point of this text. I do think it's an inference from this text. After all, tissue doesn't rejoice. Tissue cannot rejoice. The baby in the belly we know both biblically and biologically are separate, is a separate life. And it is inaccurate to suggest the fetus is part of the woman's body. Euphemisms and a heavy reliance on them is evidence of moral incompetence. It is not an accident that the first person to recognize Jesus as Messiah is an unborn child. It is just, it just so happens, it just so happens that John is unborn. Yet he sings with the angels. Yet he celebrates with the shepherds. Yet he visits and offers his best like the wise men. It just so happens he is unborn. And it just so happens is for the baby of a poor, unmarried woman. But I think we get here the real purpose of Christmas here. And that is this entire scene is centered around the object of worship. In this reunion, what is supposed to be two girls getting together to talk about their experiences, turns into a scene of worship. When John hears the greeting, his first response is, Christ has come. Let us leap for joy. 
And that becomes the definition of worship. Worship is nothing less than expressed joy. John worships the Messiah even in the womb. And Elizabeth, his mother, soon follows his lead. If you were to look at particularly Luke's account of the nativity scene, and Matthew does this as well, if you just isolate it to Luke, what you'll find is at its center is that the birth of the Messiah is cause to worship. Consider with me in Luke chapter 2, the, the, the angels show up. What is it that they sing? Glory to God on the highest, and on earth peace among those to whom he is pleased. The angels don't merely announce that Christ has come. They worship the fact that Christ has come. They worship the Christ who has come. A baby laid in a manger. A baby who is but a few centimeters in size at this moment. The response is, come one, come all, for he has been born, for Christ has come. Worship is the proper response to Christmas. But not only do we see that in this reunion, but we see a benediction in verses 42 to 45. Having greeted each other, Elizabeth is the first to speak, at least in the narrative. And no doubt her busy, her busy womb leads her to bless Mary. And once again, what we need to see here, particularly those who've been coming on Wednesday nights in our study of Genesis, is the younger is seen here as superior to the older. Remember that Isaac is superior to uh, 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 to. Ishmael and Jacob is superior to uh, Esau and uh, Seth is superior to Cain and, and Joseph in one sense is seen as superior to his brother, right? That's a pattern we see throughout the Bible. You see the same thing here. Though John is uh, uh, the eldest in terms of when they were conceived and born, Jesus is the superior in this scene. So it makes sense then that Elizabeth and the babe in her womb speak these words of, 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 of worship. Well, notice what she does, Elizabeth does in verse 42 to 45. When Mary responds with uh, her unborn child, the Messiah, the joy of her baby leads her to speak a lyric, a poem, if, if, if you will. Now, this is significant because in Luke's nativity, there are five such songs, poems, lyrics, however you want to put it. They're in varying lengths in the way they're, they're put together. The other ones include Mary's Magnificat, starting in verse 46 to 55. Right? That, that's a significant passage. Uh, that's followed by Zachariah's Benedictus, uh, which is in verses 68 to 79, right? where, where, where they use their Old Testament knowledge of, of God's favor uh, towards, towards Israel. Um, you remember the shepherd's announcement we just read, Glory to God in the Highest? That is a lyric. It's, it's a poem, if you will. And finally, the fifth is Simeon's song. You know, Remember, Simeon is the guy at the temple says, uh, Jesus, or God, you can take me now, right? You have five such poetic passages in the nativity story, and this is the first one. And it isn't merely a lyric, it's, it's a benediction, right? And so, so in this benediction, she gives three blessings to Mary. The first is blessed mother, blessed mother. Obviously, the, the word blessing is the critical word of this lyric. Now, throughout scripture, blessing or blessed or blessed, if you're from the South, or blessed, right? Uh, th these are, the term is either relational or it is Moral. That is to say, it either addresses one's relationship with God or it addresses the issue of human flourishing. 
So God blesses the patriarchs. That has to do with the relationship with them. At other times, we become blessed when we follow the law of Moses, for example, right? The word bless is a very rich term. Um, and, and in the Hebrew and the Greek, it, it referenced to our relationship with God or God's blessing of us in human flourishing. So in this sense, wisdom and blessing are very similar terms. With that said, Elizabeth announces blessing to Mary, and she delights in the Lord's delight of Mary. Now, let's be honest here. We Protestants have no idea what to do with Mary. Is that, is that fair to say, right? Our number one fear when it comes to this issue is, whatever I am, I ain't them, right? We ain't like the Catholics, right? That, when it comes to Mary, we have no idea what to do with her, right? She's cool and all, but we're not going to put her in the nativity. I mean, people might think we're Catholic. The unbiblical part of your nativity is the wise men are there. Let's have that conversation, all right? They, you know, the wise men are firemen. They come from afar. <laughs> anyway, so um, Catholics make the mistake of venerating Mary. Protestants make the mistake of failing to honor Mary. We don't venerate her, but we should honor her as Elizabeth does here. What is important is that in this benediction over Mary from Elizabeth, it is not that Mary is superior to other women. That's where Catholics get it wrong. It is rather that she carries within her womb the blessing of us all. And in that context, she is honored, she is blessed because she's been given the opportunity to carry the Christ child. And throughout biblical history, there is this language of not just blessed are you, but blessed is the woman who carries you. And that's what Elizabeth is saying here. The God in his sovereign care chose you in his election to, to have you carry the Christ child. And may we remind ourselves that Mary is not an independently strong woman who's over 30 because she don't need no man. She's a teenage girl who's mature enough to handle the responsibility. Blessed are you, Mary. And can we add that Mary is most known throughout history for one thing, for being a mother. That alone is worthy of blessing and honor. We know really nothing else about Mary other than she was called mom. How radical is it in our day and age to point that out? Women, you're being told that you have to be something more than mom to be worthy of honor. Ask Mary that. To be called mom was sufficient for her. She didn't have to prove herself to society. What we've told women is, is that being a motherhood is, is too enslaving. No, you should do everything your boss tells you at the company. That is somehow more liberating. Now here she is called mom. Not only do we see blessed mother, we see blessed Messiah, verses 42 to 43. One should know that of the three blessings, this is the only one that receives an explanation. And that Elizabeth points out that 
Mary is blessed, as we said, because of the baby in her womb. In fact, she uses the language of fruit of your womb. Now, this is a traditional Hebrew language used throughout the Old Testament. If you want references, Genesis 30, Deuteronomy 28, two times in Deuteronomy 28, and also Deuteronomy 30, where the idea that God gives fruit to the womb, God gives blessing to the womb, that children is the fulfillment of the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Psalm 127 might be particularly noteworthy. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb, is a reward. So Elizabeth is experiencing this herself. Remember, she is under the, the, the curse of being barren. Yet, by God's grace, she, her wound has now been fruitful. She is experiencing the blessings of God. And no doubt, Mary comes to Elizabeth with some trepidation. Remember, she's an unwed mother. Elizabeth's response is, no child, you are blessed by God. And children are the blessing regardless of the circumstances of their arrival. Mary is doubly blessed because her life is life itself. The baby she carries is her creator and will become her redeemer. He is the, he is the logos. He is the light. He is the lamb. He is life itself. Now, interesting, as we said, this is the only uh, blessing that re receives an explanation. Because Elizabeth wants Mary to understand, you are blessed, but you are doubly blessed, not because you're a mother, but who your child is. Mary is blessed because she is chosen by God. She is blessed because of the fruit of her womb. And she is blessed because Christ has arisen. He has come. It is here when Elizabeth becomes the first human outside of John to adore the Messiah. He is yet to learn to suck his thumb. He is yet to take his first steps. He is yet to open his eyes. Yet she realizes that the baby in her, in her room is Savior. Thirdly, blessed mercy. And this entire passage has really been about confirmation for Mary, hasn't it? The angel announced and confirmed, it is true. Elizabeth affirmed that she is indeed pregnant and that God has done a miracle and that John has celebrated this, the arrival of the child. All this has been done for Mary. She's been chosen. She's been gifted. But now she must believe. I want you to notice the language of verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken from the Lord. That belief is articulated really beautifully in Mary's Magnificat. Starting in verse 46, my soul magnifies. It's the Latin term magnificent. My soul magnifies the Lord. And read what she says. She's been reading her Bible. And she knows God can do this sort of things. If God has called her, she will follow wherever it is that he leads. See, it isn't just that she's a mother or that she's carrying the Messiah. It's that she must grasp mercy. She must come and understand the gospel. See, Christmas at its center is, should draw us to worship, but draw us to worship because of faith. We worship the Christ child who wasn't merely laid in a manger. He was ultimately crucified upon a tree. And beyond that, he was risen from the dead. And in that Christ child, in that Savior, is the hope of the world beginning with our own souls. Mary must come to believe. Blessed is she who believed. Right, Zechariah? Remember, he's mute. Right? Mary's faith is foundational to her blessing. 
God has called her to be a mother. That alone is a blessing. God has called her to believe. That is the source of her blessing. Isn't this what Jesus said in John 20? Have you believed? This is the doubting Thomas. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And isn't this how we should respond to Mary? The Catholic Church errs when they venerate her. Though worthy of great honor, she is ultimately a wonderful model and example for us all. She heard the truth of God. She believed it. She obeyed it and found blessing in it. What a model we have of faith here. But what we see in these two women is the genesis of what Christmas should really be about. Not about presents and boxes and bags, to quote the great theologian, the Grinch. It should be about worshiping the Savior whom we have believed. You see, if, if, if our celebration ends in the manger, there's nothing to celebrate there. No life-changing fact there. Unless in our worship, we, we worship one who is risen from the grave. And that requires faith. Here's a dirty little secret. Mary was in as much of a need of a savior as you and me. And God used her. God called her. Despite her failings, despite her past, despite all of that. To deliver unto the world Christ who is King, the Savior of you and me. Isn't that the good news of Christmas? It's not that God chose the rich and the powerful and the perfect, but He chose the weak, the poor, and the humble. And He still does that. That's the good news of Jesus. That any of us can come, not to a manger, but to an empty tomb. Earlier we sang one of my favorite Christmas hymns, O Come All You Faithful. But recently, Sovereign Grace wrote a similar song that is really an inversion of that. It's called, O Come All You Unfaithful. It really gets to the heart of Christmas. O Come All You Unfaithful. Come weak and unstable. Come, know you are not alone. Oh, come, barren and waiting ones, weary of praying, come. See what your God has done. Oh, come, bitter and broken. Come with fears unspoken. Come, taste of his perfect love. Oh, come, guilty and hiding ones. There is no need to run. See what your God has done. He's the lamb who was given, slain, for our pardon, his promise is peace to those who believe. So come, though you have nothing. Come, he is the offering. Come, see what your God has done. Let's pray.